I want to explain the text, help you see how the text works, how, what, why Paul says what he says, but I want to actually then kind of come back from that and get the, what's the message that he's communicating. So it's quite a task that we've got tonight and I've kind of cut down the section that we're going to look at so that we can really kind of get our teeth into a, a part of it rather than sort of skate across the whole lot. So that's the plan. Make sure you've got your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to look on as we go through, but I'm going to pray for us because it is, um, it's a rich part of the Bible, it's quite extraordinary. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we do, we do plead with you tonight that, please, you might work in our hearts, that you, by your Holy Spirit, might move amongst us to give us insight and understanding, to, to uh, capture us with the truth of what you've said here. Uh, please help me speak, speak clearly and plainly. Um, but from all of this, we ask that you might reveal yourself to us in, in profound and deep ways, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to take you through the text, but I want to kind of step back and just let you know where we're going. Where we're going, I think one of the big messages from the bit of the Bible we're looking at tonight is about judgment. It's about the need to make good judgments. And actually beneath that, it's about the reality that to make good judgments, we need to pay attention to a couple of important things. See, here's the deal. You are always going to have to make judgments. Now, there was a period of time, I don't know, about 15, 20 years ago when I, the mood around the place in Christian circles was you ought never make judgments. You ought to just be someone who never judges. Uh, it was a misunderstanding of Matthew's, uh, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, uh, 7, there where do not judge or you too will be judged. And, and so we had this kind of crazy idea that Christians could go through life and not make judgments. But it's just, it was a misunderstanding. You have to make judgments. You've made judgments all day today, you know, about what to wear. You made a judgment about whether that or this and what colour and warmth and stuff. You made a judgment tonight about where to sit, who to sit with. You've made a judgment about to come tonight, whether you will or won't. Um, you, you'll make all kinds of judgments in life, big and small. You'll make a judgment about which um, music provider to sign up to. You know, I, what is it? Apple or Spotify or Tidal? Who's with Tidal? Who's heard of Tidal? Wow, okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You've got to make judgments about which one to go with, which one not to go with. Uh, you've got to make judgments about um, girls or boys. Do, do, I, do I invite that girl out? Do I invite that boy out? Uh, do I wait for him? Do, do I say yes to that bloke? What do I think of him? Do I judge him to be someone to actually say yes to, or that girl to say yes to? to ma- do I marry? Do I not marry? You've got to make, what do I do as a job? Where do I train? What university? Do I go to university? Do I just go and straight uh, get, get, a, get a trade where I'll actually make some money? <laughs> in fact, do I, you know, what do I do with my life? Uh, all these things you need to make decisions and judgments about. The fact is, uh, we are always making judgments big and small, big. You need to make a judgment about God. How do you think of God? Do you believe he's there? Do you believe he's trustworthy? What do you think of the Christian faith? Do you believe the Christian faith? Do you judge it to be trustworthy? What do you think of all the different Christian options? Do you think there's one or many? You can choose. You've got to make judgments. Now, here's the deal with all of that. If you make bad judgments, it'll have consequences. Serious consequences. You, you choose a marriage partner that is a difficult marriage partner and that'll, that'll be with you for your life. And you'll bear the consequences of that. You, you, you choose the job that's the wrong job, that's an unhelpful, you, you'll have consequences. 
you, you choose to spend your money, you make judgments there, you'll have consequences. These things... Now, part of me wants to apologise at this point and say, I'm sorry, I've just put the pressure on you, because it does feel like pressure. You might wish you could just cruise through life, make whatever decisions you like, and like the movies, it always ends out beautifully. Everyone lives happily ever after, but it's not so. You, you make dumb... You, you're, at the, you're right at the cusp of the beginning... Of in, into that stage of life, you make dumb decisions now, you will bear the consequences for your life. Now that puts a lot of pressure on. You might wish it were otherwise, but that's not the way God's made us. He has made us in His image to be agents who are responsible, who make real decisions, and He has given us the consequences of our decisions. Feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of that. Now as you feel the weight of that, then then leads you to think, well, I better make sure I make good decisions then. But how do I make good decisions? How do I make judgments that are good judgments? That's where I want to take you tonight. That's where, especially in the matter of spiritual things. And I want to suggest to you from this passage, there are two keys to making good judgments, to judging things well. One, one is, a very obvious one, is to make sure you understand the facts of the thing you're judging. The thing outside of you. Pay attention to what's outside of you. But there's another key to making good judgments and that's paying attention to what's inside you. And I want to get us there because that's revolutionary. That's massive. Let me show you how it goes. Chapter 5, verse 11. The Apostle Paul has been talking to the Corinthians about their judgments of him. And through, I want to suggest to you from verse 11 down to 15, effectively what Paul is saying is, uh, Corinthians, you've not paid enough attention to the stuff outside of you. You've not paid enough attention to what's going on with me. You've judged me to be a leader you're ashamed of, to be a leader not worth following. You've judged me not to be someone to follow. You've judged the other leaders who have come to... But I think through here he's arguing, you've not understood me. You've not understood the facts about me. Let me show you how this works. Verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try and persuade others, what we are is plain to God and I hope it's plain to your conscience. Effectively what Paul is saying here is, what we are in all the things we do is plain to God, he knows the truth about us, I want you to know the truth about us. Why is he concerned that they might know the truth about him? Because he's done some, he's done some hard things. He's said some hard words to the Corinthians, he's... Um, called them to account for their life, their lifestyle, their decisions they've been making and they've been unhappy with that. And so they've sort of said to themselves, he's not worth following, they've got off in a half, upset about Paul and, and judged him to be someone not trustworthy. He's made decisions that have changed back and forth and they said, see, he's always changing his mind, he's not worthy of following. And Paul says, Corinthians, you've not understood the facts about me. And God knows... And we want it to be plain to you as well. Verse 12, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. We want you to actually realise that if you understand all the facts about us, you'd be proud of us as your apostle, instead of being ashamed. Um, and we want you better to answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than what is in the heart. Because where he's heading here is to say, I want you to know what's going on in my heart. And if you can see what's going on in my heart, all the things that you don't like about what I've been doing, you'll understand why I've been doing it. Now, what's going on in his heart? Well, verse 11, back up the top. 
He's compelled, driven by a fear of the Lord. In his heart is a deep desire to do what God wants him to do. Do you remember we looked at this line? He wants to please his Lord because he knows that he'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so he's got to give an account for all that he does. He's not just, he's not just making this up, Corinthians. I'm not just saying hard things because I don't know what's... I'm, I've actually got to give an account of you to my God. That's what's going on in my heart. You need to know that, how seriously I take this stuff. Uh, you, you get this expressed in verse 13, which is a tricky verse, but let me just show you this. If we're out of our mind, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Now, I'm going to explain a little bit what I think it means, but bottom line, Paul is saying in verse 13, um, everything I'm doing comes from a heart of love. Love for God, love for you. I don't do anything out of selfish motive. Everything I'm doing is either for God or for you. You need to know what's in the heart. Now, what does he mean by if we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God? That's the little tricky piece. Uh, just to, I'll give you my quick thought on it. I'm not sure I'm right on this. Uh, there are different opinions around. A uh, couple of things to note. Firstly, as some say, you see those three words in verse 13, they're not in the original language. Paul didn't write those words. For some reason, our translators have dropped them in there. <laughs> but Paul actually just said, if we're out of our mind, it's for God. Now, that's almost one of the only places in the whole Bible where you'll see a couple of words added to give an explanation to make sense of it better. But those words aren't there. The word, if we're out of our mind, uh, that Greek word is used in other contexts for the kind of experience of uh, ecstatic, visionary, speaking in tongues-ish kind of stuff. So I think what Paul's saying here, and I'm not convinced of this 100%, but I think what Paul's saying, if we're, if we're caught up in ecstatic experiences, tongues and visions, that's for God. That's to God. If we're in our right mind, if we speak plainly and truthfully, rebuke, encourage, teach, instruct, if we're doing all of that, that's for you. That's our love of you. Now, whether that's right or not, the bottom line is Paul's saying you need to know what's in our heart. The motivation for everything we do is others. We are not in this for ourselves. He drives this even further in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. You, 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 we're, not, we're not saying these things to you because we want, to, we want to make you friends with us or we want you to like us or because we have some masochistic hating thing that we want to hate on you. We're saying it because we're compelled by Jesus' love to have to say it. Understand, Corinthians, what's going in our heart. You see, when you make judgments, you need to know all the facts. And Paul's effectively saying, Corinthians, you need to know all the facts about me, about what's going on for me. Now, have you ever had that experience where you've been, someone said something difficult, someone's given you a hard time or whatever, and you've, you've dismissed them and rejected them? Um, and, uh, and what you needed to do is actually pause and realize they were doing it out of love. They are actually compelled by your good and that changes the whole way you relate to them. That's what he's saying here for the Corinthians. Uh, don't listen to those who take pride, he says in verse 12, who take pride in what's seen rather than what is in the heart. Pay attention to our heart. Understand the evidence outside of us. Now, you, you get what's being said here? Uh, if you're going to make good judgments, you've got to get all the facts. You've got to understand why someone's doing what they're doing, not just what they're doing. That's what Paul's doing. 
Now, we, let me apply it to us very briefly. There's a sense in which we get this, it's fairly straightforward, the idea that if you want to have a leader over you, the best kind of leader to have is someone who's not in it for themselves. If you have a leader over you who's actually all about their own identity, their own power over others, their, their prosperity that they gain from leading you, uh, the, the status and significance and worth they gain from being a leader, if you've got that kind of leader over you, you can't trust them. You don't know whether they'll be saying what they say for their own sake or for your sake. You can't trust that kind of leader. So I want to just encourage us that as we think about leadership, uh, you might move, you might need to think about another church to join. Um, make sure you assess the churches you join with respect to whether the leader that you're joining is in it for themselves or is really compelled by what it is to fear the Lord and be loved by the Lord. Are they really compelled by the love of you and the love of the Lord or are they in it for themselves? That's an important thing. As you're listening to leaders online, I don't know if you do this, if you get podcasts of preachers around the world and so on, it's all possible now, of course, for a long time. But if you know, you're listening to a long, if you like someone who's and they're preaching, one of the things to check, what's their life like? Have they amassed great wealth? Are they living in mansions? Are they, do they have a fleet of luxury cars? If you see all of that going on, it's a, it's a trigger to make you suspicious that perhaps they're not in it for you. They might be in it for themselves. So you can't trust what they teach. Be very careful about who you listen to. Pray for your leaders here that we might be more and more like the Apostle Paul. If you go into leadership yourself, if you lead a youth ministry, you teach at kids, EV kids, you lead a growth group, uh, if you're in any kind of leadership of teams around the place, learn to be like the Apostle Paul, who was in it for the sake of honouring God and the love of others. They, he wasn't in it for himself. Learn to be that kind of leader. There's some applications. Let me give you a big one though. The big one is that you can trust the Bible. Let me explain what I mean. Every apostolic leader except one died proclaiming the news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Everyone but one, the Apostle Paul included. They gave up everything to go around the Mediterranean preaching that they saw Jesus die and then rise again to life. They preached this against all opposition. And here's the thing, they gained nothing from it. There was no personal benefit that they gained in claiming these things, that they'd seen Jesus die and seen Jesus rise again to life, literally. They gained no personal benefit, far from it, they were killed for it. Now, why is that important to notice? Because you can trust their testimony. Leaders that are in it, for the love of others, for the truth of what they proclaim and get no personal benefit, you can trust what they say. And the testimony of the leaders of the first century, one of the great evidences for the reliability of their testimony is that they weren't in it for themselves. They died proclaiming this. 
Paul insisting, Corinthians, I'm not in this to be friends. I'm in this because I have to be accountable to God and I'm compelled by the love of Christ and I'm going to say what needs to be said. You can trust me, Corinthians, when you know it's in my heart. You can trust the New Testament testimony about Jesus. Now, I tell you that because I know many of you are struggling. I know this particularly is a stage of life, if you've come to faith in Christ in recent times, where there can be all kinds of doubts and you wonder, is this really true? My life is very different from my friends and wouldn't I be better living the way my friends live? And you start to wonder, is it really worth it, sacrificing so much and being pure and holy and letting go of temptations and you kind of wonder, is this really true? Is it really worth it? It is. The apostolic witness is so profound. They are trustworthy in all they said because they gained nothing from their testimony. We can trust them. Do you see again what Paul is saying to the Corinthians? You've misjudged me thinking that I've been doing what I do for my sake. I've given up all benefits so that you might have life. And in proving this point, he comes down into verse 14, 15 with some of the most profound insights into the death of Jesus let me just take you through this as a bit of an aside we're going to dig into this more next week if you if you if you've got a friend who doesn't know the things of Christ next week next week's a great week to bring them along as we dig into this second half of chapter five but look what he says there he says the love of Christ compels me he's trying to say I'm motivated not by your interests I'm not by my own person I'm motivated by the love of Christ but then he explains what that love is I'm, I'm motivated by the love of Christ because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Wow. We'll look at this again. But one died for all. What does that mean? What it means is that a man 2,000 years ago, when he died on the cross, died in your place. When he died, in some extraordinary, miraculous way, God united you to his death. So that his death was your death. Before you were even born, he united you to Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're one who trusts in the Lord Jesus, your Lord and Saviour, if you put your faith in him, you're a Christian, then God put you by his Spirit into Jesus in his death. One died for all so that all died, all believers, I think he's referencing there, all died. What does that mean? It means the debt that you owe God has been paid. The wages of sin is death. What we owe God is death. One man paid that penalty for you, completely, finally, fully. You have died. You don't need to die again. In Jesus you have died under God's judgment. You may go through a physical death, but it will be the shadow of real death, spiritual death. You won't spiritually die. One died for all. And he's saying, the Apostle Paul is saying, that's the love of Christ. Paul's saying, you know, I'm constrained by that love to live the way I am. Because I realise what happened in the death of Jesus. But more than this, he then goes on in verse 15 to say, the reason he died, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
See, again, he's driving home this idea to the Corinthians that all I do is out of love for Jesus, not just to win approval. I'm actually, it's because of the love of Christ, because he died for me that I might no longer live for myself, but live for him. I want to please him. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Know what my heart is. But here's the lesson for us tonight. Why did Jesus die for you? That you might no longer live for yourself, but for him the one who died for you and rose again. That's the very heart of Christianity. You were made to live for God, not yourself. And God in his grace sent his son to die for you that you might be freed from sin so that you might now no longer live for yourself but for him. Now I don't know if you picked that up about what a Christian is. The very heart of being a Christian is that you now no longer live for yourself. Life is now no longer about me. Life is now about pleasing my Saviour, the one who died for me. That's Christianity. And I dare say, if you are not someone interested in living for Jesus, then you have not been saved by Jesus. If you're not interested in living for Jesus, then you weren't one who was died, killed with him on the cross. The two go hand in hand. If you have been connected to Jesus by the Spirit and died with him, you will have a new nature now. He says it, the old is gone, verse 17. Desiring to increasingly live for him who died for you. It's a powerful truth about the Christian life. Is it your truth? Is that how you think? Every morning I wake up, my desire, Lord Jesus, is to live for you today. How can I please you today, not me? Is that the way you think about your life? That is Christianity 101, the very basic fundamental sense of it. Now, that's not the main point I want to draw your attention to. And as I say, we'll come back to some of these issues next week. But the main point is make right judgments. How do you make right judgments? Two keys. The first key is you've got to understand all the facts about the person you're judging, the circumstance you're judging, the situation, and so on. The second key, the deeper key, is you've got to pay attention to what's on the inside of you as the one doing the judging. Let me show you this in verse 12. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now, I want to suggest right there there's a hint that Paul's offering that one of the problems with those doing the judging of him and being ashamed of him is something going on inside them. It's not just that they've misunderstood the facts about Paul, it's actually that they're brought to the whole exercise of making a judgment about Paul, a distorted lens through which they see Paul. They are a group of people, he says, verse 12, who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. That is, they've got a a set of values, a set of a way of seeing the world that's, that's viewed through what's seen, external stuff, not what's in the heart. 
And so because of the way they view the world, they misjudge Paul. Let me, let me give you an example about this. Um, you, um, you're interested in the girl, or the boy, you can translate. Um, you're, you're interested in the girl. It, it's, it's more dreadful this way around, so I'm going to tell it this way. You're interested in the girl and, um, and so you, you want to make a right judgment. Is this a woman worth marrying? And so you learn about her, you begin to get to know her and you find actually that she's quite selfish. She's unreliable. She hasn't held down a job. She's always asking for money from people. She's flighty. But she's very, very attractive. And so the judgment you make is, she's the woman to marry. Good judgment or bad judgment? Bad, bad, bad. Don't do it. Now, women, uh, so it's more intense that way because women are smarter. They, they tend to see through the looks and aren't as concerned about that stuff. And usually it's because you don't look that good anyway, but they, they're, able to, they're able to see through that. But blokes get caught up on this all the time. Now, the issue is this, you've understood exactly what's going on for the girl, but you brought to the judgment about whether she's a good marriage partner a distorted value system. You see? You actually live with this view that what makes a good marriage partner is someone who's very attractive. You've taken pride in what's on the outside instead of what's in the heart. And you will make bad judgments because of it. Now, you play this out in the spiritual realm and you see what Paul is talking about. Look at verse 16. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now what I want to suggest to you is that Paul was once like that man and the way he was judging the girl, except he did it in the way he judged Jesus. That is, he brought a distorted value system to the way he judged Jesus and misjudged him because of it. What was his distorted system? He looked on the outside, not on the heart. You see, he brought a value system to the judging of Jesus that went along these lines. He lived with the notion that if God were ever to show up in the world, you'd know it was God in our world by these kinds of external, exciting things. There would be fireworks. There'd be pyrotechnic displays. There'd be flashings of lightning. There'd be... um, uh, he'd, be, he'd be the coolest, the most powerful, the most wonderful, the most attractive. He'd be a strong person who just conquered anyone in his path. You'd, you'd, he brought this whole value system. He, when he met the Romans, he'd destroy the Romans and he'd drive the Romans out. But when Jesus came, there was nothing in him that attracted us to him, Isaiah 53. There was no um, look that was particularly attractive, Isaiah 53. He came in weakness. He came as the child of Mary, a nobody from the northern area of Galilee. He, he, he wasn't born in a palace. He, he, he was able to display powerful miracles, but he was passive towards the authorities. They challenged him and he meekly went along with them And he went like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53. Instead of fighting off and being the triumphant king, he let them capture him, torture him without a word. And he let them kill him. And they hung him on a cross and he let them do it. 
And so the Apostle Paul, having this value system that greatness and glory, the glory of God will be seen in this pyrotechnic fireworks, when he saw Jesus, said, you're not God. Born in a stable. Weak, humble, submissive, dead on a cross. You're not God. And so what Paul says here, we once regarded Jesus from a worldly point of view. We once viewed Jesus through the lens of worldly values and so misjudged him. But we do so no longer. What happened? Well, the Apostle Paul understood verse 14 and 15. He realised that in the death of Jesus, it wasn't Jesus, the weak, pathetic victim. It was actually Jesus, the glorious, conquering love who came to do it for us. Who knew the only way to save humanity was to die in our place. And to do it humbly, submitting to his Father, giving himself over passively to human authorities he realised actually that was the most extraordinary act of courage and greatness and glory the world has ever seen. He completely rearranged the way he saw what glory and greatness was because he understood the cross. He saw now that to be glorious was to be someone who was humble, submissive, faithful, someone who sacrificed themselves. Now, this was news for Paul because in the ancient world, back in the uh, early centuries in Rome and Greece, the way they thought about greatness and glory was much more like the Corinthians, much more like a worldly point of view. The way they used to think about glory and greatness was if you were going to be a great one... Now, this is hard for us to understand because we live in a... after 21 centuries of Christianity shaping us, this teaching shaping us. If you go back into the into the Roman and Greek world, the way they thought about greatness was entirely via externals. You are great if you have power over others. You're great if you're prosperous and wealthy and successful. You're great if you're prestigious. You're great if you're, um, if you're good-looking and powerful as a muscled, muscled person, muscled, as a muscled person. And they got all of this from their gods, so the Greek gods, the, the Roman gods, were all into preening. They were all into luxuries. They never served anybody. And so the whole ancient world had this sense of greatness seen in externals until the Christian God came along, the true God. And he came into our world as a servant to serve us, never been heard of in the ancient world. No other God had shown this. Came into the world to serve us in humility, humbled himself, humbled himself obediently to his Father, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And that changed everything. That changed humanity. It's changed our experience of life. Even if you're not a Christian, you have the... You have the um, consequences of this impact on your life today. Now, this is not just my idea. There's, um, there's a man called Tom Holland who's written quite a bit on this issue. Not a Christian, a secular author who has uh, written quite a major work called Dominion. 
and in this book he recounts human history and takes you through the ancient world and the way they thought about greatness, glory and so on and talks about the impact of the Christian claim about God coming to earth to die on a cross and shows that that actually has changed the whole way we think about greatness. So many of you are sitting here today going, yeah, I get that. Humility, submissive, courage, that's great, that's glorious. You only get it because of Christianity. You strip away Christianity and we'll go back to being Corinthian, which is exactly what's happening in the world. Have you noticed? Our world is more and more back into externals. We are back into power, making sure they don't have it so that we can have it. Externals, looks, the amount of money that gets spent on the way we look, the way we dress, marketing, visuals, the whole thing shapes our culture as we become more and more Corinthian because the Corinthian way of seeing the world, the worldly way of judging the world is natural to us. It's Christianity, it's God who has broken through that. You know, um, the, the, the deep thing here is, friends, when you make judgments, that, that young man who made a judgment about the girl to marry, judging her to be a worthy marriage partner, that said more about him than it did about her, do you see? It tells us a lot about what he valued because as you make judgments, you do it on the basis of how you see the world. Will you make those judgments like a Corinthian does or like Paul now, converted to Christ, does? Because what's going on here for the Apostle Paul is he's, he's concerned for the Corinthians, not just because he wants them back with himself but because he's conscious that their failure to see him for who he is and take pride in him demonstrates that the way they see the world is corrupted because Paul is living exactly like Jesus lived. And if they don't like Paul, then it shows they've never understood Jesus. They don't actually understand how great Jesus was. They don't understand where true greatness is found, which probably means they actually don't know Jesus at all and may not be saved. That's why this issue matters. You see, if you claim the name of Christ, but judge the world in a Corinthian way, through the lens of the Corinthians, through externals, you've probably not understood Jesus and may not actually be in relationship with the Jesus who shows his greatness and glory by weakness. Let me give you one little example of this, and then I'm going to invite you to reflect on it in your chairs with one another. Let me give you one, I'll give you an example of this. Where, this. where you feel this is with the word submission. With the word submission. The word submission is not a happy word today. To be a submissive person is seen to be weak. We want to be assertive. We want to be the go-girl person. We want to be the one who's you know, as, not passive, but active. Submissive is a very critical negative word in our world. It was to the Corinthians, but it's not to Jesus. What made him great and glorious was that he was submissive. Submissive to his Father's will. And the Apostle Paul captured that truth. The glory is found in humble, faithful submission. And so he lived life of humble, faithful submission to his God and gloried in it. But evidence that our culture is becoming less and less Christianized 
is the way we think about the word submission. Let me take a pause there, and what I want you to do is uh, reflect with the person next to you. Just have a think on your own, but then reflect with the person next to you. Um, how might, let's apply this into church life, if, if you judge the world the way the Corinthians judged it, what might you expect to see in church as evidence that the powerful God by His Spirit is present? Let me just give you that question. If you walked into a church and you wanted to know whether God is present by his powerful spirit in this place, what things would a Corinthian look for to evidence that? What things would they be looking to see to evidence that God is really here among you? How might a Corinthian think of that? Go for it. Take just a minute with each other. Okay, that'll do us, just a couple of minutes, well, just a couple of seconds. I don't want to torture you having to talk to the person next to you, so let's, uh, let's get some reflections, just feedback. How, how, what would a Corinthian expect to see if they were to believe that the Spirit of God in power was present amongst us? What would they expect to see? Give us your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They'd expect to see the people there with lots of physical, luxurious success. They'd expect to see the church full of people who drive great cars, who are successful businessmen and women, who, who wear beautiful clothes because they're successful as humans, because they're more than conquerors. Yeah, yeah, you'd expect that. And you might expect the church, therefore, to be, you know, a very luxurious place with spectacular, attractive things, great artwork and so on. Yeah, not that it's wrong to have great artwork, actually, by the way, but yes, you might expect expensive artwork. Great artwork that's cheap is good. Come to taste. <laughs> if you want to see the expensive artwork that's I've gotten in a holy... Okay, what else, what else might a Corinthian expect to see? Yeah, instead of me. <laughs> yeah, they'd, they'd expect to see a um, charismatic, um, very clever, uh, you, you know, um, very highly educated, impressive academic person. Yeah. Or a very cool, trendy person. You know, I read years ago of a, a, a man who was trying to convince their friends about the person of Jesus and said... Um, you know, writing to 16-year-olds saying, I want you to know that if Jesus came to the earth today, he would have been the greatest basketball player, he would have been the greatest football player, he would have been the coolest surfer in the world. Do you see what's going on there? That's, that's Corinthian. Because if Jesus came today, he would have been dreadful at basketball. You, you know the point I'm making. You, you know, he, just, he, wouldn't be, he wouldn't have evidenced himself in much glory in any of those things. Yeah, as God he could have, of course. 
Yeah, a, a, a speaker who um, wants to prosper and be successful themselves. And so plays on your emotions and wants you to fire you up and get more money. Yeah. Powerful miracles. You would expect a Corinthian to come into a place and, and, and you know, if the Holy Spirit of God is present amongst us in power, we expect fireworks. This won't just be a group of people who sit quietly and listen. This will be a group of people who, they, they, they touch people and they get slain in the Spirit and a dead person gets raised and, you know, lame people, it'll be exciting and spectacular. Exactly, yeah. What else would they expect? They'd be healthy because they'd be triumphant. And so Paul was embarrassing because he had a thorn in his flesh that he couldn't get rid of. He, was, he went through depression, mental health issues, beyond his ability to endure. He wasn't this triumphant, successful person, you see. Now, there's a bit of the Corinthian. Can you feel how much you might be there? Well, that kind of things I'd expect. It seems a bit wrong, doesn't it, to have a group of people who are in touch with the Holy Spirit of God who are just meek, quiet, gentle. But that's Corinthian. Because how would you expect the Holy Spirit of God to be evident in a group of people who are genuinely in touch with the Spirit of God? You would expect them to be people of love. You know what, the... the, the Satan can come amongst a group of people masquerading as an angel of light, Paul says. And he can perform signs, wonders and miracles. He can do counterfeit signs, wonders and miracles. There's it's no evidence of the Spirit of God that you see miracles. Satan does them. But I'll tell you what Satan can't do. The thing he can't counterfeit is causing people to no longer live for themselves but live for him who died for them. The spirit of Satan can't counterfeit that. If you want to know the true evidence of the spirit at work amongst a group of people, hang out with them. See whether they're desiring to no longer live for themselves, but to die to self and live for Christ, to please their Lord, to please and live for him. If you're seeing that amongst a group of people who are trusting the Lord Jesus for their daily life, that's evidence of the true power of God. The true power of God evidenced in humble, faithful, sacrificial service, submission to one another. That's the Spirit of God. Do you see how it's very different to Corinthian thinking? But you get there when you understand the cross, when you understand the way Jesus came into the world, the way he lived in humility, humbling himself to death. And Paul understood the cross and so shaped his life off Jesus and lived the way he lived and rejoiced and gloried in the greatness that that was because he knew how new was. And so he made right judgments. The Corinthians, not so much. Brothers and sisters, be careful about how you judge things. Be aware you've got to make judgments. Learn how to make good judgments. Pay attention to learning all the facts. The outside, the inside, the facts of someone's external, the facts of their heart, the facts of circumstances. Pay attention to what's in the heart, but pay attention to what's in your own heart. Because all of us have our own set of values, lenses through which we see the world. And that will either 
hinder your ability to see what's really going on from God's perspective or help it. Change the heart by the work of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you might help that be the case amongst us. That the Holy Spirit might work in our lives to change our hearts, transform us so that we can, Romans chapter 12, test and approve what your will really is. That we can make good judgments because we've had our heart transformed to see the world through the lens of Jesus. That we're able to see what true glory is, what true greatness is and no longer be Corinthian. Um, Please help us on that journey to give ourselves more and more to living for you, the one who died for us, the Lord Jesus, who died for us. Please help us trust him, please him, we ask. And we ask it all in his great name. Amen.